Hey y'all, I'm Brent Holmes, your host. In this season of Spectacle, we explored what Las Vegas tells us about American culture. In our 12th and final episode, we wanted to do something special and give you a sneak peek of season three, which will be dun dun dun! Spectacle True Crime. So we thought we'd do a little mashup, discuss some cases that shook Vegas, and to have this discussion, we're bringing back season one host, Mariah Smith. I'll let her tell us why. Hey, Mariah, welcome to the show. Hello, hello, hello. I'm happy to be here. Dude, it's so rad to have you here. And I hear you have some exciting news for us, right? I do. It's crazy. I feel like I've been sitting on this for a minute, but I will be coming back to Spectacle for season three. And we are focusing on true crime, which I cannot wait for. So to kind of get listeners primed for season three, we thought we'd have you on today and discuss true crime in Vegas. Yeah. And we're going to go through some notorious characters. (laughs) Oh, God. This is going to be a wild ride and a good primer for what's to come in season three. Yay! So, okay, first up is Heather Tallchief. For folks who don't know who that is, and that's like probably 90% of y'all listening— Heather Tallchief ripped off casino ATMs in 1993, making out with $3.5 million in cash. She was 21 years old, she was white, and she was pretty. I suppose she's still all those things. And she was a driver for the ATM company Lemus. So she essentially was just going around to all the casinos, ATMs, and putting all the cash in bags. And she takes them into an armored car and drives away. What's nuts? is that she got away with it. She and her accomplice, Roberto Solis, were on the lam for years. And four years after the heist in 97, Tall Chief was still number three on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, making her the highest ranked female criminal on the list since they started it in 1950. So yeah, that's a lot, right? Uh (laughs) (laughs) It is a lot. It's crazy. And when I first heard about this, what's funny is I'm someone who loves a good procedural. So I watch a lot of 911 on Fox. And one, I can't remember if it was Lone Star or Straight Up 911. They had a storyline where there was a woman who worked at a casino who pulled off a similar heist and wasn't caught until years later. And I was like, I wonder if that could actually happen. And then I found out about Heather. And I was like, oh, I see where the story originally came from. And it's so fascinating because when she decided to finally turn herself in, it was after she had a son. And I believe it was because she wanted to be a good, it sounds weird to say, but a good role model for her child to show you do these bad things, you have to pay the consequences. But also I believe it came to a point where she needed to get like a passport renewed for her and her son and it was going to be impossible to do so. So she was sort of backed into a corner with having to do that. Yes, I guess she gets tired of making her son live a double life in Europe, which honestly sounds fun to me, but to each their own. But her turning herself in back in 2005 makes the story get even crazier. There's been a lot of stuff on her. Netflix did that show Heist and dedicated a couple of episodes to her. It's not bad. Yes, yes. So they there's um, a couple of shows. There was a Dateline on her and then an Unsolved Mysteries about her. And it's fascinating because especially with Dateline, I feel like some of the biggest 
stories that come out of Dateline are focused on women, like, because people are so astounded and interested and women who are able to pull off these magnificent, for lack of a better term, crimes, and not even just pull them off, but get away with them for so long. And again, she is a pretty young woman, fairly young woman, so, and a white woman too, which gives her a lot of privilege in this sense. I really can't be confident that a woman of color would have been able to lay low this long if they were that high on the most wanted list, but she has become a little known, but her star in the world of true crime is rising. Yeah, yeah. They did the Netflix series and it's kind of a lifetime Mm esque reenactment with an actor, right? That's how I found out about her. So she seems to get through a lot of things, including like her terrible driving (laughs) and... She's just underestimated in general under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. So, like, Heist spends a lot of time going into Heather's background, and she clearly had a terrible childhood. Do you think there's an overt amount of empathy projected onto her? I think so, because it is trying to even mention, you know, she had a terrible childhood, which a very valid, you know, reason to have some empathy for someone, especially depending on how their life has turned out were making a lot of excuses for behavior she chose to do. And like, she actively decided to commit these crimes. She actively decided to evade the police. Again, number three on the most wanted list in the 90s. Like, that's crazy. You are someone that people are heavily and actively looking for. And you think back to women who I can't help but sort of compare it to like a uh, Breonna Taylor or Sandra Bland, where these women were criminalized for being themselves as women of color who were murdered by police. And they've gotten more scrutiny attached to their lifestyles, the way they lived, that has made it so that they had these fatal run-ins with the law. Uh, But someone like Heather you are giving these concessions and she's having excuses made for her to um, sort of explain away her criminal behavior. It's really fascinating that it's almost the inverse when you see Mm -hmm. the specific examples you cited, women of color that have been murdered by police. And it's like, let's find everything that could have possibly made them responsible for their untimely demise under a random circumstance, right? Are there any like examples from the show that you thought were a bit much or overly sympathetic. The actress who was portraying her in the heist of the Netflix show specifically was using a lot of her interviews verbatim in the testimonials in the show. And also there was a lot of story about people in Heather's life and saying she was under the control of a boyfriend, um, saying that she was far too innocent and that, oh, she was a bad driver, like you mentioned, like all these things to say she wasn't set up for success in this field. But I also, it makes me think, a show that I'm really obsessed with now, and I was obsessed with the Dateline series, is The Thing About Pam. And I remember reading about the show, it's Renee Zellweger's playing this woman, Pamela Hupp, who murdered a young man who lived in town. But people who were speaking about her in this show, they were like, she was a very smart, capable, good person. Why would she do this? And they're making her life out to be a little bit cheekier and more fun and all that. It made me think about Pam and also Heather, where the people around them are so charmed by someone. They can't believe that this unassuming white woman who seems to have a lot going for them would on their own accord and on their own volition commit these crimes. When in reality, you can be a bad, sinister person no matter where you came from, no matter what you look like, no matter what your circumstances are, and we shouldn't just sweep that under the rug. 
one of the odder um, things about the Heather story is she obviously did this with her boyfriend at the time, uh, Roberto, and she claims that I touched on a little bit that she was under his control, but specifically she was charmed by his quote unquote sex magic with a CK at the end of that. And it is just, it's just very, it's so bizarre. And I'm like, when you're resorting to these sorts of shenanigans, just be quiet, serve your time and let it go. And for her to blame him, it's like, no, miss ma'am, you were number three on the most wanted list. You were the one who was running from the law. Like, take ownership of what you did. You obviously knew you did something terrible or else you would have been turned yourself in years ago. This also, like, circles around this weird factor within our culture at large, which is people that often utilize a kind of spirituality, sometimes sexualized, sometimes not, to... Mm -hmm excuse all sorts of terrible behavior. And it's weird that, that there's this spiritual application and then this like pointing to the boyfriend that underlies all of Heather's criminal decision-making. Exactly, exactly. It's like, no, you were smart enough to behave this way. You were obviously smart enough to know if you were under the spell of his sex magic, I don't believe it was as overwhelming as it could have been if you were able to look back and call it that again with the CK in a very bizarre way. So she spent five years in prison for a massive robbery worth millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And even within the show and the way her story is presented, that presupposed innocence, that presupposed kind of goodness within her works out pretty well. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine if I were to have robbed a million dollars from an ATM retrieval place, that I would be serving only five years and then be allowed to go back and work my job. Absolutely not. Because also, again, a lot of the tilts with the story of Heather is she did get away with this crime, but also people are impressed and sort of applaud her for turning herself in. So I feel like she got brownie points for that. And it was only the fact that it was becoming such a major hindrance in her life that she eventually had to sort of get over this hump to continue on. So the five years was essentially a slap on the wrist. And it's like, this woman was living for decades, <laughs> you know, evading the law and lived as a free woman for organizing and pulling off one of the greatest heists in history. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Chilling Tales. For Dark Nights, good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances 
that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next, like, kind of amazing Las Vegas-related criminal is actually one of the city's touchstones. Benny Binion. He's, like, super wild, larger-than-life character here. He died at the age 85 back in 1989, so he hasn't been around for a while. But like Trump, Benny and his family put their names on everything. They have their names stamped all over Las Vegas. There was this 1999 Texas Monthly story that totally encapsulates the vibe of the family, which is like Succession, you know, the show Succession, but with cowboys. He was a Dallas gangster, and he's a super problematic hero of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. But the thing that got me is I read that article and I was scrolling through his wiki, and he's the type of man who has... It's almost like if you put every different crime or moral failing in a hat and picked something at random out, he would have done it. He had horses that were named the N-word. He carried a gun with him at all times. He was just, for lack of a better term, a monster and behaved in monstrous ways. But his family, like you said, it's a it's a very fair comparison to the fictional family of the Roy family in succession, but also the unfortunately very real family of the Trumps. And they were like Vegas royalty, for lack of a better term, despite their extremely problematic past. And they essentially found a way to bring that mobster lifestyle to Vegas and romanticize this lifestyle of being hardened criminals who get anything they want, who have money, who run this town, and uh, played into the idea that this is a city of second chances. Yeah, it's it's some really dark patriarchal, uh, like white masculinity stuff. I mean, Benny Binion, he actually committed officially one murder, right? And then right, we right. know for a fact he actually attempted to kill another guy, this guy named Herbert the Cat, like nine times. He finally pulled it off. Herbert did not also take this lying down. One of my favorite pieces of research I found on him was that he tried to fly a prop plane with bombs strapped to it from Texas to Jesus. Nevada and was arrested. And it was right after that that he mysteriously got blown up. Um, <laughs> and it's it literally is something that is out of a movie. Like, you don't think these things actually exist. It feels very... Almost again, I haven't seen it. I've read the story, but it seems almost very like House of Gucci esque, where you have this very mob mentality, think very Sopranos, think you can get away with anything. And in this case, he basically did. People knowing the horrors of what he's done, like you said, one murder on record, uh, but also a laundry list of other crimes and terrible behavior, people still revered and respected this man. Yeah, no, I mean, they loved him in this town. And, you know, there's a statue of him mm -hmm. across from his casino. He's also the guy that created the World Series of Poker after he was disbarred from running a casino. Right, right. But this is also a man that, like, it's common knowledge that if you messed with the Binion family, you were going to get taken down into the basement of the horseshoe and have a finger or two mm -hmm. chopped off, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And he's a hero. He's yeah. looked at as someone that changed the face of how casinos dealt with the customer. He's the guy that gave limo rides to regular customers. Everybody that's gaming drinks for free. 
And he's completely celebrated. How many statues to serial murderers do we have in our culture uh, outside of maybe some generals? Uh, <laughs> modern day, yeah. <laughs> modern day serial murderers do we have in our culture, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't help but think of people, it's an odd tie-in, but you think of someone like like a Bill Cosby or an R. Kelly even who have committed these horrific crimes, but they're still revered in a certain way. And it's the age old conversation of separating the art from the artist. And it's like, can you, yes, I know this person has done these horrific, terrible things, but also they're such a revered figure. And especially in Vegas culture and history, yes, his name hasn't been, you know, plastered all across these, these semi-great United States of ours, but he has made a name for himself and people do respect him despite knowing the full truth of what he's done or the majority of the truth of what he's done. Cause I'm sure there are many things that have yet to come to light, nor will they ever. Yeah, I mean, they're a massive deal. Uh, Not just, you know, Binion's Horseshoe and the casino empire that his family built is definitely instrumental and influential to the structure of the city, but they're also really well-beloved. And there's that weird Mm -hmm. um, Trumpy dissonance where people love this monster that's causing a lot of other people pain, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And overly bigoted, uh, exceptionally cruel, very dangerous, and they conquered the city in a strange way and and in some ways more effectively than a lot of the other mafia families that were coming from Chicago or New York. Right. Somehow the cowboy sensibility vibed with the town a little bit more, probably with the locals a little bit more. And they got away with a heck of a lot more problems. It also... Just when you even think of the model of the town, Sin City, or what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, people are very prideful and and want to live up to the hype of Vegas. And they're like, this man encapsulates all of that. He is almost their best kept open secret of someone who was doing dirty in public. But again, that's the name of the game in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. That's Benny Binion, uh, uh, like a real daylight monster, which I find <laughs> yeah. always, you know, he's a monster that that got all the light on him and, and it didn't expunge any mm-hmm. of that darkness, right? Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. And then we've got Sam Little. 
Sam Little is believed to be the most prolific serial killer of all time. And most people have probably never heard of him. Mm -hmm. He died at 80 years old in 2020, but he confessed to 93 murders. Just to put that into perspective, Ted Bundy confessed to 30. They believe he was killing people up until 2005, so basically he retired at 65. It's so crazy, and it boggles the mind because this man is a textbook serial killer, but then part of me is like, why doesn't he have more attention? Why isn't he getting the Ted Bundy treatment? Why isn't he getting a Netflix show? Why isn't he getting the unfortunate celebrity treatment that these white men who are doing the exact same thing are getting? And it's terrible. And I have a hard time wrapping my mind around the allure of, I guess for lack of a better term, the reverence of serial killers or murderers or criminals. Again, something we will dissect in season three of Spectacle. But I'm like, a Black man really can't have anything. It shows that no matter what pocket of society you're in, discrimination exists. Like you are, and it also shows how much people unknowingly respect these white men who are serial killers, like, because they're showing them they're funding these people's families, essentially, because you have to get the life rights of the estate. Like these men are celebrities now. And this black man is a tried and true monster, but no one knows who he is. I mean. It's really awkward to call systemic racism on being a little-known serial killer. Honestly, but... But, it, it, but that's why it's systemic, yep. right? Um, that's what the term means. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I think another large part of why he's not as observed in is because most of his victims were black women mm-hmm. and most of them were from marginalized backgrounds. Mm-hmm. They were sex workers. They had uh, drug addictions. And we're only really talking about him because the FBI put his confessions and one of his alleged victims was a woman in Las Vegas. Did you watch that confession video? I did not. I like could not handle it. But I know that one of the, one of the key parts in law enforcement being able to find many of the women that he murdered, again, many of them are still unknown, like the young woman in Vegas, it's he did drawings of women. So it was all very, for him, theatrical and very self-serving, as I feel many serial killers are. But he was someone who was very proud of what he did. He was very methodical. He thought a lot about it. And again, killed nearly a 100 women. And that is minimum. That is what we know. And you have to think about the deaths that weren't investigated because— The same systemic racism that keeps him from being, you know, one of the more noted or popularized serial killers in our culture also made his victims sort of invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, you go on the Wikipedia and it has dozens and dozens of victims labeled unnamed black victim, right? Yep. Yep. It goes back to, you know, you think of the victims of a Ted Bundy or someone else where it was a conventionally attractive white man who preyed on a conventionally attractive white woman. And it was something that was very palatable. It was something that, because it was relatable to the majority of society of like, I could be that woman or I could be that man. And people don't want to relate to black people or people of color on anything. It's crazy that we don't know him. Mm -hmm. He had a rap sheet. Like he had been arrested on several occasions 
And it took decades for people to piece together that he was a serial killer. I have to say that I think part of the reason that people can't identify with him is that there's this presumption within the realm of racism in America that to be a serial killer, you have to be clever, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To be a serial killer, to get away with it, you have to be very clever. And people aren't looking at black men that way because of that presumed intelligence. And I think that's sort of what fascinates people about serial killers in a weird way is, is they're actually someone that you should kind of laud in their intellect or capacity to get away with something that no one else can. No, exactly. But then also, and you mentioned it, and I just really want to hammer home the fact that, again, many, if not the majority of his victims were Black women or women of color who had difficult lives, who were either sex workers, who were either drug addicts, who were single parents. And going back to relatability as well, you're like, well, they were, you know, they weren't living the best life. So like, eh, it doesn't matter. It's val- the way people value black bodies against white bodies. And his victims weren't valued enough to give them enough attention and bring enough attention to their murders as white victims. And of course, these white men typically prey on white victims because, again, it's finding value and what you're doing. And across the board, these women's lives weren't valued. And that is why... Sam Little's life hasn't been as highly publicized as these other serial killers. So it really is showing how much disrespect we have for Black women. And again, goes back to how women like Breonna Taylor and Sandra Bland are being criminalized for simply existing. Yeah, there, there's the presumption that if you're a woman, particularly a woman of color, and if you're living any kind of difficult or bad or, or questionable mm-hmm. life, that you somehow have invited your own destruction, right? right. And right. And we can go all the way up to Heather Tallchief again. She's honorable for turning herself in, mm-hmm. even though she was living that same terrifying life. Yeah, yeah. The darkness is so incredibly deep and in how we laud these criminals. The hype and the celebrity and the weight and merit we put on certain people as opposed to others. And I'm really excited to dive into what intrigues viewers about true crime, what intrigues viewers, people like me who are obsessed with law and order. Like, why do we have such a deep interest to watch these shows about horrible crimes? Why do we have a deep interest to study these criminals? And why are certain criminals and certain victims treated like they don't exist? So this has been a fun conversation. Murder, murder, murder. I know, right? No, it's been great. It's so great to connect with you. I'm so thankful that, you know, we are able to bring to light these aptly named spectacles, get eyes on it, and you are a genius in your field, and I hope that I can live up to the hype you've created in season two, and I'm so excited to continue this journey. Uh, Well, I certainly hope I did well by you from season one. It's a a really miraculously wonderful show, so... I can't wait to see what season three brings up. Thanks for coming on, Ryan. Of course. Thank you. Well, that's it, I suppose, for Spectacle Las Vegas. It's been a journey, y'all. Thanks for listening to me rant endlessly about DeForest Ranches, Showgirls, shout out to Versace, and Toxic Bros. I'm just going to put on my Stetson and my Spurs and ride off into the sunset. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to stay subscribed because Spectacle True Crime is coming soon. Spectacle Las Vegas is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted by yours truly. 
It was produced by Navani Otero and Liz Sanchez. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Spectacle's senior producer is Joanna Clay. Our associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Original music by Hans Dale Sue. And special thanks to Tanner Robbins, Vikram Patel, Shara Morris, Odelia Rubin, Chloe Chobel, and Catherine St. Louis. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. I'm Brent Holmes. Y'all come back now, you hear? Spectacle Las Vegas is brought to you by my silly dad, Brent Holmes. Give him five stars on Apple, okay? Or else he'll be sad.